Father, we praise you that your word brings life where there is death. It brings hope where there is despair. It brings the restoration of all that you intend for your world where there is brokenness. We pray that you would do that in our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, encourage us, equip us to live for you, to live for Jesus in your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are the greatest distractions in your life? A survey a couple of uh, years ago indicated that in the average workplace, a third of employees are distracted for up to three hours a day. 10% said they achieved just half an hour of actual work per day. (laughs) Maybe your mind turns immediately to possible candidates for that category. Uh, The most common distractions were chatty colleagues, slow computers and internet connections, although interestingly, men were more likely to blame technology for poor performance than women, Uh, but men were also more likely to spend time doing online shopping at work than women. Other distractions included social media, fairly obviously, and also gazing out of the window. And, uh, you know, life will always be full of uh, distractions. But the thing is, when you think about it, some distractions are more serious than others, aren't they? So 72% of drivers admit to driving while distracted in some way, whether by a mobile phone or or trying to open a packet of crisps or uh, fiddling with the radio. And, of course, in the worst instances, getting distracted like that can be fatal. Now remember, Proverbs, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, thinks of life as a journey. A journey with all kinds of distractions. We're on a path and the goal, the destination that we're heading for, is kind of ending life trusting in Jesus. Keeping going all the way to the end, whether that is our death or whether that is when Jesus returns. Now, it may be that you're here and actually you've not yet started on that path. You're looking into things. You've not yet trusted in Jesus for yourself. And actually, it's great that you're here to see this. But something for all of us to think about, whether we've started on that path or not, is how we can be sure that we will be able to keep going on that path that leads to life. Right to the very end. We can each probably think of people who used to be going strong in Christian faith, but for some reason now seem to have fallen away. You never see them at church, not just this church, but you don't see them at any church. Uh, They may even be quite clear that they no longer call themselves a Christian. What is it that will keep us going? Now remember also that these chapters 1 to 9 are an introduction to the book of Proverbs as a whole, a kind of manifesto for wisdom to get us to pursue and to desire wisdom more than anything else and and a warning against getting distracted by folly, by foolishness, which will pull us off the path. And this chapter 2 is a kind of self-contained poem that continues to raise some of the themes that we're going to see in more detail. So Proverbs sort of introduces things, then it kind of says it again in a bit more depth, 
Then it says it again in even more depth, and we're going to see that over the, 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 the coming weeks. But if you look at this chapter, there's a kind of structure to it, if you have a look. So each of verses uh, um, 1 to 4 says, if, if you do this, if, 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 verse 5, then, then these things will happen. So if you look at the handouts, you'll see that in the headings. First of all, verses 1 to 4, if you listen to God's words, if you listen to God's words, well, what will happen, we'll see in the second half, but words are big in this poem. Can you see there that there are other words mentioned later? Verse 12, the words of wicked men. Verse 16, the seductive words of the adulteress. The point is, which words are a dangerous distraction and which words are going to save you? If you look, first of all, the father is telling the son to listen to his words, the father's words of wisdom. But if you look, where does the father get these words from? Well, verse 6, the wisdom the father passes on is wisdom from God, from his words. It's the father taking his job seriously of passing on God's words to his son. That's where his authority comes from. He's not just issuing arbitrary commands. He's seeking to pass on God's words to his son. And he tells his son, listen, listen, my son. But what kind of listening does he talk about? Verses 1 to 4. Well, there are different types of listening, aren't there? There's the, the type where, you know, you've got the news on TV, uh, but you're also on Facebook and you're kind of reading a book and, and theoretically having a conversation with somebody. And, you know, I'm beginning to learn slowly that that's not the best way to have a conversation with, particularly with your wife. Little tip there, you can have that for free. Uh, but that isn't the kind of listening that's going on in verses 1 to 4. Can you, see the, 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 can you feel the sense of importance and urgency in this kind of listening. Single-minded, I really, really, really need to hear this. Accepting, storing up, turning your ear so that you actually hear better. Like, you know, when you're on an important phone call and suddenly all distractions in the room become really annoying because you're straining to hear every word the person is saying in case you miss something. Applying your heart, he says, if you look. In other words, committing your whole being to listening and obeying what is said, calling out for insight, crying aloud for understanding, he says. You know, this isn't just, oh, I, you know, I wonder what Romans 2 is about when you open the Bible. Oh, well, never, I don't know, really, never mind, shut the book, move on. It's not that, is it? It's saying, please, God, help me. I really need to hear what you have to say in your words. Verse 4, it, it, it's, it's looking for it as for silver, searching as for hidden treasure. Now, quite a few years ago when I was at Oak Hill, I lost my wedding ring. I don't know if any, any of you can identify with that situation. And I suddenly realised it wasn't on my finger. Now, what do you do at that point? At that point, you don't just shrug your shoulders and carry on, do you? All other activity stops. And you are focused on finding the ring, retracing all your steps. And I remember walking back from our house to the college, searching every possible blade of grass, because I walk, you used to walk over this field to get to, to the college. So where on earth is it going to be? And I even borrowed the Oak Hill groundsman's metal detector. And I spent a couple of hours wandering around this field. I found all kinds of interesting bits of metal, nothing particularly valuable, but I didn't find... The ring. What was I going to do? And finally, 
I gave up, I made an insurance claim, I chose an identical new ring, and on the morning that the new ring arrived, I found the original one under the bed. <laughs> now, the insurance company were very understanding, I did send it back. But the point is, if you've lost something, if you've lost something precious, or if you think that there's treasure to be found, it is all-consuming, it requires everything from you. You will not give up until you find it. And that is what the Father means by listening to God's words. It's what Solomon means as he passes this on to his son. Now, how do we do that? We do that by reading the Bible. We do that by listening to sermons, by going to small groups, by meeting one-to-one with each other. But how often does reading the Bible become a kind of tick-the-box exercise? You know, here's the passage for today, right, I've read it, Mm, not sure about that, shut the Bible, move on. That's not the kind of listening that Solomon has in mind for his son. So for us, if if Bible reading has turned into a bit of a, a chore, we need to remember, don't we, what the Bible is. It's like a love letter. It's words from our Heavenly Father, who's not against us, but is for us. And so when you open it, pray. Expect to hear his voice. And keep reading and pondering and praying until you get it. If you don't get it, if you don't hear it, get help. You know, that could be from, the, from Bible commentaries and notes. It could be from, for, from coming and asking me or Andy or, or somebody, like a small group leader or something like that, another Christian friend, and saying, what's this about? Help me understand. But listen. Listen to God's words. Because if you listen, then secondly... If you look, you will know how to live wisely, verses 5 to 11. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. This is saying God's word keeps you on the straight and narrow. It keeps you on the road that leads to life. It keeps you and it protects you. And it does that in two different ways, one on the outside and one on the inside, inside us. On the outside, God's word shows you what the right way to live is. It holds up the example of a wise life, ultimately in Jesus, but also in other things. And look at what that brings. God is a shield, verse 7, to those whose walk is blameless, and he guards the course of the just, verse 8. In other words, God protects his children who live wisely. And mainly they are protected because God's way of living is a wise way to live. It works. See, so often being a Christian goes hand in hand with people getting their lives together again. I've previously been involved in two different churches where we've partnered with Christians Against Poverty. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they they help people who who are in debt. Uh, And they help them with both practical help and love and help with their finances, but they also, through that, share the gospel with them. And there were people in these churches whose first contact with the church had been because they were struggling with debt. But as these cap debt counsellors helped them deal with their creditors, they also shared the gospel. They talked to them about Jesus. And they helped them to see, actually, you've got an even greater debt than these money worries, which seem to be all-consuming, understandably. Well, you've got an even greater debt as sinners, just like we're all sinners. And soon... Some of these people did become Christians. They came to trust in Jesus and their lives were turned around. 
and they began to, to feel real hope for the future as, uh, as alongside that their money worries were sorted too. I'm sure others will have testimonies of uh, coming to Christ at the same time as being freed, for example, from alcoholism or other addictions and problems. And that kind of thing does go on. And Proverbs seems to make these kinds of promises. So, look, I mean, look at, look at uh, verse 33 at the end of chapter 1. Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. That's wisdom talking. Later on in the book, in, in the kind of main bit with the, the, the different Proverbs, chapter 12, verse 7. Wicked men are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous stands firm. Chapter 13, verse 25, the righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. Now, what do you make of those kind of promises? Because, you know, where you see that in real life, okay, great, but maybe you're sitting there thinking, hang on a minute, life isn't always that easy, is it? It isn't always that straightforward, even for Christians. It isn't that easy. So for a start, what about the persecuted church? So open doors who work with the persecuted church worldwide, they've just published their world watch list for 2018, which details the worst 50 countries for being a Christian. The top five are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, and Pakistan. If you convert to Christianity in Afghanistan, you can expect to end up in a psychiatric hospital. That's what they'll do, apparently. Uh, or you can expect to be beaten up by your family, or even killed. That is the world out there for, for Christians in many countries. But actually it can be the same right here in a different way, can't it? You don't, you don't have to be a Christian for very long to realise that it doesn't make you exempt, or it doesn't seem to make you exempt, from the problems of living in a fallen world. Through bereavement, through serious illness, unemployment, family breakdown, depression, untimely death. So we read these promises here in, in Proverbs chapter 2. We, we read, he is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. And we think, well, hang on, what does that actually mean? He protects the way of his faithful ones. You know, can you, can you believe this? And that's where we need to really grapple with and understand what kind of book Proverbs is, the statements that this book is making. Because the statements it's making are general truths, but they're not necessarily universal promises. Can you see the difference? It's a bit like saying this, the kind of thing we hear a lot. If you want to avoid lung cancer, it's a good idea to give up smoking. Kind of, you know, that's a general truth, isn't it? But actually, some lifelong non-smokers still get lung cancer. But if you want to avoid lung cancer, it's a good idea to give up smoking. Living God's way usually brings blessing. There will be benefits from doing so. But sometimes Christians suffer, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're doing something wrong. The supreme example of that in the Bible, of course, is Job, or next to Jesus, apart from Jesus. But the, the supreme example, of the, 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 apart from Jesus in the Bible, is Job, who, who is living a blameless life and yet suffers in extraordinary ways. So it's generally true that, that wisdom will bring blessing, but it's not a, not a universal promise, certainly not in the short term. So we need, to, we need to have that in mind. We also need to have in mind that when the Bible speaks about suffering, um, it, it speaks about it in a completely different way from how we normally think about it. So, for example, you get in the New Testament, you get the Apostle Paul, who talks about, he says something extraordinary, doesn't he? He says that he rejoices 
in sharing in Christ's sufferings. The apostles in the early church rejoiced that they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 5. I don't think that's how we normally think about suffering, isn't it? We just think of it as something you need to try and avoid. But again, in that material that Open Doors have released about persecuted Christians, they, they point out that in Afghanistan, again, for example, you know, while plenty of Christians get beaten up by their families, other families are so struck by the change that they see in their Christian son or daughter or brother or sister, and they're so struck by their willingness to, to risk everything for the sake of knowing Christ, that actually they themselves also come to Christ. And there are amazing examples of whole families converting, which is kept top secret for understandable reasons. But it's a, it's a wonderful reminder that good can come out of suffering. Persever- persevering through suffering can be a witness to others. So again, the, the, the Bible thinks about suffering slightly differently from how we think about it. And then, even beyond that, we need to remember to think eternally, don't we? And that's another big Proverbs theme, to look beyond the here and now. We're so caught up in our immediate circumstances that anything going wrong here and now, we just can't see beyond that. But Proverbs says, no, remember there is a God, and remember there will be a day when all wrongs are put right, and there is a world coming, a new heavens and a new earth, where these things will no longer be there. Therefore, put life on the scales. There is some suffering, there's some difficult times here for a few years, even 80 or 90 or 100 years or more, but compare that to millions upon millions of years of joy with Christ in a new world without suffering. And ultimately, that, that is what the Bible is pointing to when it says wisdom will bring blessing. It will, because it's Seeing life with that eternal perspective. So, God's words will help you live wisely on the outside, but it will also help you live wisely on the inside. Can you see that in verses 9 to 11? Promise of changed hearts. This is a kind of foretaste of the promise that Jesus made to his followers, that his Holy Spirit would live in them, making them more like Jesus. And as we listen to God's word, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts to make us wise on the inside. So that eventually we, we don't always have to ask others to, to uh, help us when we face tough decisions. We know what to do because God has made us wise. You see that, it, it, you know, you see that in people, don't you? You, see, you know who the wise people to go to are because you watch their lives and they just seem to make the wise decisions without somebody having to tell them what to do. And that is because the Holy Spirit is working in them to change their hearts. Wisdom will enter your heart, verse 10. How do we get that then? How do we become those people? Well, we become those people by listening to God's words. Can you see then why it's worth seeking out that treasure in God's word? This is the outcome that, that, that it will have in our lives. Treasure the Bible. Tr- listen, make time so that we can be wise like this and live confidently in God's world. So if you listen to God's words, you will know how to live wisely. And then thirdly, <clears throat> if you look, you will be kept from falling away. 
from verses 12 to 22. There are two kind of pictures of things which make us fall away here. They're basically easy money, verses 12 to 15, and easy sex, verses 16 to 22. Verse 12 to 15 is is the general picture of falling in with the wrong crowd, like we saw in in chapter 1. The people described here are people who've left the straight paths, verse 13. What will save you from falling away like this? They're kind of saying, come and join us and, you know, we can... It doesn't actually say money, does it? But you can imagine why they are inviting people to join them in whatever plan and scheme they've cooked up. This is the easy way to to, to get, get, get through in life. We were struck by this in the men's breakfast small group uh, Bible study yesterday morning. So verse uh, 14, those who are after the kind of quick buck, they delight in doing wrong and they rejoice in the perverseness of evil. But where will the delight of the wise be? Not in the perverseness of evil. Where will the delight of the wise be? It will be in God's words, verses 1 to 4. And if you are convinced that the Bible contains treasure, you will delight in it. And through that delight in God and his son. And actually when you're doing that, when when that is your delight and your joy and what gets you out of bed in the morning, doing evil will seem far less attractive. It's worth doing a heart check, isn't it, then? So, so where do our inner thoughts turn when we have nothing else to think about? What is driving our daily decisions? Even what makes us whoop for joy? You know, actually, if, if, if it's the annual bonus or something like that that warms the heart and drives us, but the Bible leaves us cold and indifferent, isn't that telling us something about our hearts? About re- what really matters to us, what we really value? Now, the solution to kind of realising that, as we all will in different ways, it's not just to shrug our shoulders in guilt and and sort of, you know, think, well, I don't know what to do about that, but, well, come back to basics with God. That's always the answer in the Christian life. Rediscover the treasure of the gospel in his word. Come back to Jesus through that to find the joy of sins forgiven, of eternal life, of unconditional acceptance and joy. See, that is real treasure, isn't it? Far better than any bonus or whatever. But do you believe that? That is uh, verses 12 to 15. And then 16 to 19 talks about easy sex. Now, Proverbs has got lots to say about this, so we we will come back to this in in later chapters. But again and again, it is sex and relationships that in some form take people away from the path that leads to life, that lead people to fall away. So look at verse 16. It talks about here about the adulteress. We were talking again about this yesterday. But it could so easily be the other way around. It's not singling out women in some way as guilty. Remember, this is a father talking to his son. He is warning his son. So he's putting it this way around. But we need to hear this as addressed equally to both men and women. And again, it's about the temptation. It's about the smooth words. And the the point with both easy money and easy sex is, the point is that it's so easy just to drift, drift into sin in these areas. Because what do you have to do to give in to temptation in this way? Well, the simplest thing to do is, is absolutely nothing. 
to just let events take their course. And the seductive words that seem to promise so much will do the rest, won't they? So sometimes people wonder, you know, why, why the Christians in the Bible, you know, why they go on about sex, or they seem to, you know, it comes up. Well, well, you know, what's the big deal? Well, actually, there is a clue here, isn't there? If you have a look, verse 17, look at that word covenant. See, the Bible is big on marriage and sex because marriage and sex are about covenant making. And covenant means promise. Marriage is a covenant, and the whole point of it is that it reflects the relationship between Jesus and the church. And solemn promises of marriage reflect the solemn promise of God through Christ to his bride, the church, not to leave her or forsake her, but to love her forever. And so that is why the breaking of marital promises, adultery in other words, is in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? It's not some arbitrary rule that's just been dreamt up to make life difficult, but it's because at the heart of God's dealings with mankind are the promises and covenants that he's made with his people. And that's why the chapter then ends, if you look, with these, he suddenly starts talking about the land, you know, people living in the land and who's going to be remaining it, who's going to be cut off from it. And you think, well, where did that come from? That's a bit of a random way to end the chapter. But the point is because in the end, Israel's unfaithfulness in personal relationships mirrored their unfaithfulness in their relationship with God. And it will be the same for us if we follow that same path. Now, I know these things are hard to hear. They may be particularly hard to hear for some of us, either because of things that have happened in our family backgrounds or things that we've done in the past or things that have been done to us in the past. And again, we just need to remember, don't we, that this is spoken by Solomon to his son, a young man for whom life is still in the future. So what he needs to say is about warning and about, you know, watch out for this. But actually, it's different, isn't it? When you're looking back on things that may have gone on, actually, that is different, isn't it? And the the Christian gospel is a gospel of forgiveness, of fresh starts, of restoration, of repentance. And that means that, you know, whatever it is, if we come to God and and speak to him and confess our sin, if if it is something that is our fault, if it is something that we have done, he promises he will hear that and forgive us. But this, written here, is a warning and exhortation to the son about the future. And, 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 and we need to hear that too. He's saying, don't go near the adulteress, because the adulteress is a promise breaker. And actually, Christians need to be promise keepers, because God is a promise keeper. And again, as we hear this, then, we need to ask ourselves, where is my delight? My heart will go after what my heart treasures. And if our hearts are captured by lust or pornography or fantasy or perhaps by inappropriate desire, if, you know, if you're married or they're married or if they're not a Christian perhaps, what our hearts need is to be recaptured by God in his word. Maybe we need to rediscover joy, contentment, purity. Maybe it's trust that we need. Maybe it's trusting that actually God's way is the best way. Even if we think, actually, I'm not sure I'd do it like that. Do we trust that God, our creator, knows us, knows us better than we know ourselves, knows how the world works, knows what wisdom looks like? 
So that even if we sort of suspect, I don't think this is going to make me happy, well, who do you trust? Do you trust yourself or do you trust the God who made you? See, when we delight in God's words, digging for them, treasuring them, he promises that wisdom will keep us. As we're reminded day by day, week by week, of the promises that God has made, that is what is going to keep us going on the road of wisdom that leads to life. That is what's going to rescue us from those fatal distractions that threaten to take us off into oblivion. We need to be single-minded, delighting in God's word, in Christ. And he promises that he will keep us. So let's make that our prayer then. Let's make our prayer that, that God would make us people who want to listen. So that we know how to live wisely and we're kept from falling into sin, from falling away. Let me pray now. Father God, there's so much here to to challenge us, to make us realise where our hearts are, going after things that aren't from you. And we need to hear afresh the warning not to go after those things, but to find delight and treasure in you, in your word, in Jesus. Please help us. Please show us where we're doing that, where we may not even be aware. And if we are struggling with particular things, we pray that you'd give us good Christian friends we can talk to. You'd give us great wisdom. You'd give us the gift of your Holy Spirit so that we can find delight in you. And we can be kept on the path that leads to life. We commit ourselves to you this week as we face daily temptations in the workplace, in our with our at home, in whatever places we find ourselves. Keep us, we pray, on that path. In Jesus' name, amen.